0: This episode is brought to you by Awesome CX by Transcom. Awesome CX provides high-touch, personalized customer experience services to consumer brands of any size. Stay tuned for a special offer for Stairway to CEO listeners later in the show. Hello everyone, it's Lee Green, and welcome back to the Stairway to CEO podcast. It's my mission to bring you real, honest, and unfiltered interviews with some of the most innovative founders and CEOs from all walks of life. We'll talk about their climb to the top, their stumbles along the way, and the steps they took to get them to where they are. So tune in to get inspired, listen to some real talk, and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. I'm your host, Lee Green, and welcome back to the show. This is episode 164, and today I sat down with Cedar Carter, the CEO of The Good Patch. The Good Patch offers wearable wellness patches that deliver sustained, steady, plant-based benefits over 8 to 12 hours. Cedar shares her story from growing up as the oldest of three on 10 acres of land in Washington State, to getting her first internship in New York City to work for Donna Karen to working in marketing in LA for brands like BCBG, Roxy O'Neill, and 2xU, Times you, to serving as COO and president of The Good Patch for just 10 months before earning her title as CEO. We talk about her leadership style, her first fundraising experience, and the importance of thinking big picture. If you like what you're hearing on the Stairway to CEO podcast, don't forget to click subscribe, leave us an awesome review, and check us out on stairwaytoceo.com. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoy this episode. Cedar, thanks so much for joining the show today. I'm super excited to hear your story and becoming CEO of The Good Patch. Thanks so much for joining us.
1: Thank you so much for having me.
0: So you're in Hermosa Beach right now. I'm in LA area, so we're not too far away. I know you were mentioning that you grew up in Washington State on 10 acres. What a cool childhood that must have been. Tell us more about what it was like growing up. Did you have siblings? What kind of things were you into?
1: Yeah, I mean, it was pretty magical. Now looking back on it, I think as a kid, you don't often appreciate those things. But I'm the oldest of three I have two younger brothers, they're quite a bit younger than me. But, you know, we pretty much lived off the land as kids, uh, especially when I was growing up. And you know, had 10 acres of land, there were hiking trails, ponds, you know, lots of wild strawberries and huckleberries and all the things that you can imagine. So it was a, we were very close to nature and it kind of grounded me from the start, I would say, and, and set a lot of my values. And now as an adult in living in LA or outside of LA, i kind of aspire to get back to some of those right? values. For sure.
0: I know. I'm like, yeah. is there any land left? You know, is there anything left? For us, you say, Oh, all the things you can imagine. And I'm like, I actually can't imagine wild strawberries anywhere. Like I was just at a farm the other day.
1: That's wild for me. <laughs> right. Yes, that there are such a thing. But um yeah. yeah. So it was it was wonderful. And of course, as a kid, I couldn't wait to get out there and experience. Right world and right now I wish I could go back but I'm the
0: same exact way I feel like I was like riding my bike around the neighborhood and going down to the creek and climbing trees and all of that stuff as a kid and now I'm like I have my own kid and I'm like wow I really want to go back to the middle of nowhere again (laughs) just a little (laughs) bit just a little bit yeah (laughs) definitely can appreciate it when you're older but same as you I couldn't wait to get out So you were the oldest of three. Looking back, you know, what kind of leadership skills did you kind of show as a kid? Is there anything that you can think of?
1: (laughs) Well, I think my mom would say that I have always been kind of stubborn and strong willed and I have karma. I have a daughter who's also stubborn and strong willed. And we always joke that they're great leadership qualities. They are. Yes. Yeah. Right. So and it's it's good to be strong and independent, I think, especially as a female. But yeah, I think growing up, I, you know, I always liked, I was pretty independent as a kid. We lived in the middle of nowhere. We didn't have a lot of, we didn't have any neighbors. <laughs> 10
0: acres acres and acres.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, I think just kind of finding my own way from the start and being kind of adamant about things that I wanted to do. I, you know, I loved playing sports growing up, but didn't have the type of parents that were saying, Oh, do you want to play soccer? And do you want to do this? I kind of had to discover those things myself and make a case for it and make it happen. So, yeah. Yeah. (laughs)
0: I hear you. Well, I'm with you on the, I hope my kid who is also very strong-willed and stubborn, I hope that that is, it turns out to be a positive attribute of uh, potential leadership is what I try to tell myself as well. And so what were some of your first jobs when you think back?
1: Yeah. So, you know, my family lived pretty simply and I kind of always had something in me that wanted a little more, wanted to be able to do the things and participate in the sports and things that I wanted to do. So my first job really was coaching coaching gymnastics at a very young age. And it was because I was into gymnastics and dance and I wanted to do more of it and be on competitive teams and things, um, which costs a lot of money. And so ended up coaching gymnastics in order to pay for my additional classes and things along the way. And it's, it's funny because it was a very simple job, but it led to many other careers along the way for me, just kind of the value of networking, I guess. So coached all through junior high and high school. I started, you know, when I was, I don't know, 11 or 12 years old, honestly. And then when I went to college, that gym helped connect me with another gym in the college town that I was going to school. And that's how I paid my way through college and then ended up coaching gymnastics at a sleepaway camp on the East Coast and met someone whose parent was uh, an executive at Donna Karen, and they helped me get my very first college internship. And it kind of just kind of snowballed oh. from all. So I can, that, I can kind of, you know, it all goes back to just coaching gymnastics at 12 years old.
0: <laughs> that's amazing. Isn't that crazy how things can spiral into directions mm-hmm. you just can never predict. It's wild.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, that's why it's so important to work hard in any job that you have, regardless of how important or not important it seems at the time, because just you learn something from every experience, but also you never know who you'll meet along the way. And people remember people that that stand out and work hard, you know, and it can all lead somewhere else.
0: Absolutely. So what was your first internship like? And what happened from there?
1: Yeah. So I interned, I was the only intern in the publicity department of Donna Karen, which was such a dream job for me. I wanted to work in the apparel industry out of school and that was a tough internship to get. Um, I got it because they said that they could tell that I wanted it the most and they thought that I would work the hardest, which was probably true seeing, you know, seeing where I came from. That internship was very similar to the movie Double Wears Prada. It was this, you know, this little, you know, girl from Washington State from middle of nowhere that's plopped into New York City, you know, working sometimes directly for Donna Karen at the time and in a very kind of hustle and bustle environment.
0: Were your parents so- like freaking out that you were gonna be <laughs> in New York City?
1: So my mom's actually from New York originally. So I had some relatives and things that I could stay with, thankfully. But yeah, I think my parents have always kind of been shaking their head at me. They're, you know, they're proud of me, but they're also, you know, they chose to kind of leave the city life and go live somewhat off the grid. And then I think to have a daughter that basically wanted to do the opposite you know they're kind of we're
0: like we're the it. same like you actually are like <laughs> your parents because i feel like you're ready to go and live on 10 acres of middle of nowhere right now yeah
1: <laughs> yes yeah so
0: actually and they were probably like you when they were young right exactly like i think
1: video. you know as kids you always want the opposite of what you have <laughs> grass is always greener right Certainly. The grass is always greener, or you think it is. It's not actually. That's true. It's all just your perspective. Yes.
0: So you had this devil wears Prada job at Donna Karen in New York City. It's your first time living in this crazy huge city from having lived in a very, very small rural area. What was it like? Did it inspire you to want to stay? Were you like, this is my place? These are my people. I'm gonna stay forever. Like, what was your what ended up happening?
1: You know, it was a great experience. It was very hard. I worked, uh, you know, over 40 hours a week unpaid living in New York. Um, yep. so Sounds it was, about right. I, I felt like I was, you know, surviving on peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. Yeah, all the things. Probably. Um, trying to hail taxi cabs at rush hour with, you know, 45 garment bags on each hand sort of thing. Mm-hmm. But, you know, I think it really just instilled in me some work ethic. You know, I I knew I would have to work hard and and it kind of just was reality. It was, you know, if this is something that I want to do, I'm going to have to work hard and be able to kind of chart my own course, I guess. And so It definitely made me think that I love New York, but didn't want to live there. And so I, you know, the the following year wanted to intern in Los Angeles because there was also an apparel industry starting really. I'm I'm that old. It was just kind of starting in Los Angeles at that time. What year was this? This was, so let's see, it would have been late Mm nineties. Yeah. 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 So late nineties and there were kind of two fashion houses i guess you could say in la at the time was really just bcbg max azria and then guess and right. then there were some kind of denim brands just starting mm-hmm. to pop up at the very beginning so i interned at bcbg max azria the following summer and then ended up getting hired for a job there out of college so in la was definitely instantly much more my speed it felt much more kind of go with the flow you know beach vibes Right. Right.
0: Yeah. That was before I feel like it got crazy. You know, I feel like it. it's gotten so crazy now. And that was before probably the very beginning of the premium denim market. Yeah. Right. Like the very early days of that, because L.A. is, I think, the premium denim denim capital of the world.
1: Yeah, um, absolutely. It was. You're right on. It kind of. So I moved to L.A. and started working for them in I guess it would have been 2001. I think Seven Jeans kind of came on the scene right after that and was the original. The OG. I could be wrong.
0: (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So then how did it go after that? You were there for a little bit. You're like, LA is my place now. This is what I enjoy. It looks like I think you also worked for Quicksilver, Roxy and O'Neill. So you stuck around in the LA, I think apparel industry for a little bit. Tell us about your experiences at the other brands.
1: Yeah, you know, I think when you're young, it's hard to know what you want to do until you try it. And so I knew that I had a passion for apparel and wanted to work in that industry. I started my career in marketing. I've always loved marketing from the start. And so at BCBG, it was a great first experience. You know, getting the marketing department was somewhat small, or I guess, relatively small. And so I really got an experience doing all sorts of different things from publicity to events and kind of everything in between. And then it was just a matter of kind of finding the right company that aligned, finding your people, right? Mm-hmm. And so I, you know, I moved to LA, I learned to surf when I moved out here, of course, (laughs) of course, yeah, of course, as you do, I've always been very active and kind of needed some activity when I moved to Los Angeles. So that's what I got into. And then that's kind of what led me to Quicksilver and Roxy. And I really felt like I found my people there, just wonderful, wonderful company to work for really great experience. I was passionate about the industry and the sport and the ocean and the environment and everything that went along with it. And it was really fun to be a part of that, especially in the heyday of the Roxy brand and creating content and just bringing so much joy really to these young women. And you know, they've always been somewhat about female empowerment. so it was it was fun to be part of that movement. That's awesome.
0: Yeah. And so you were there for I think five and a half years or so, and then you went to O'Neill, right? Am I saying it right? I yeah O'Neill. O'Neill, yeah. yeah. So it's like such a legacy brand, I feel like in the surfing world.
1: Yeah, O'Neill. You know, Jack O'Neill invented the wetsuit, and it was really, really cool to go from Roxy, that was this very female-oriented brand to O'Neill, who, um, you know, at the time when they they really hired me to kind of build out their women's marketing program, because they had been somewhat male focused in history. And so that was a really great opportunity to kind of build something from scratch. They had a female brand, but they didn't really have a brand identity or anything surrounding it. So that was a really fun project for me to work on a lot of great experience and fun to be with a heritage brand like O'Neill that really stood for surfing and had literally invented the wetsuit and all these, these cool things. So I did that for a long time, I think, I don't know, seven or eight years and had two kids along the way there, which was great. And then I got an opportunity to work for an activewear brand, and they were an Australian based activewear brand called Two Times U. It's just the letters two and then XU. So in the States, a lot of people mispronounce this two XU, but it's actually two times U. And they are the ones that make all of the really technical sports compression that you see on endurance athletes and professional athletes. I think at the time when I was there, they sold to about 90% of the professional sports leagues. And so all those arm guards and compression tights and things that you see under the uniforms of professional athletes, a lot of them were made by Two Times You. So they were looking to really build out the D2C side of their business and and scale the US business. So I came on actually in a marketing capacity as their VP of marketing originally. And then they went through a pretty massive restructure very soon after I joined and I had been you know, pretty involved in the e-commerce side of the business there and helping them get pointed in the right direction. And so it, it evolved from a marketing role very quickly into me being the GM of the entire America's business. It was kind of crazy. And, you know, I think as a marketer, I'd always had an eye on the big picture and, you know, always, as you should think, always thought of marketing as, you know, how do we get long lasting um benefits from the marketing that we're doing that can help the total business, you know, open up different channels of distribution, partner with different brands, get different consumers into the brand. So yeah, so ended up in a GM role and that was my first experience really running a company. So I reported to the CEO that was in Australia um, and I ran the North American business, which was Canada, US and South America, Central and South America.
0: So, did you have to kind of fight for that role, or how did you position yourself to get that role? right? Like, as if that's your first big kind of leadership opportunity, how did it come about? It didn't just come up on a silver <laughs> platter. I feel like they don't hear it stories didn't. like that often,
1: yeah. I know it's it's really interesting. I think because I had always inserted myself into the bigger conversations honestly probably whether I was invited to or not because it was always hard for me to just be in a marketing silo and I don't mean just because marketing is a big role in many companies and it drives a lot of businesses but I was always thinking beyond marketing so you know you as a marketer can only do your job if you have great products to market or if they're going into the right places and so it was always sort of inserting, thoughtfully inserting my opinion into other areas with data and reasons behind why I shared those opinions. And, you know, the CEO at the time when I was hired, I remember in the interview process, I interviewed with him for the marketing role. And he went, you know, wow, you're the first marketer I've heard talk about the business in such an all-encompassing way. You know, you're talking about the total business and ways to drive the whole global business forward, not just North American marketing. And so from the start, I think he kind of knew that that's how I thought about things and liked that. And so it's kind of hard to explain but there was a lot of reshuffling going on um and because e-commerce was such a massive piece of that business or they thought that it could be and I was sort of leading the charge on that respect they sort of took a chance and said let's see what she can do and if we need to hire somebody else over her as a president or something down the road we can but let's let's see what she can do so they kind of just took a little bit of a chance on me i think because of the the way i thought through things. And then we very quickly proved that out, took them from, from pretty massive operating loss to profitable and, and did a bunch of good stuff during that time.
0: That's awesome. And then, so how did the uh, opportunity to work at the Good Patch come about?
1: The Good Patch was really through a mutual network. So they approached me via one of their board members at the time and I had never done CPG. I had you know, not in the personal care kind of wellness field. I'd always been in the apparel world. But the brand at the time was starting to get a lot of interest from apparel retailers. So I think they had distribution in anthropology and had just gotten distribution in Barneys and some of these other big apparel retailers. And we're just starting to build out the D2C side of the brand as well. And I think because I knew those worlds, kind of how the wholesale retail apparel world worked so intimately, and also knew how to build and scale a D to C business, they just approached me thinking that my background made sense for them. And honestly, I was a little skeptical at first. I wasn't sure if I wanted to leave apparel but once I looked at the packaging and the marketing, I just saw such a great opportunity. It's such a unique product. And having come up through the marketing world, it's a marketer's dream to have a product that's truly unique. It doesn't happen right. very often. So yeah. yeah, so I kind of, it was a, a big risk, honestly, probably for them and for me to take mm-hmm. the role. Mm-hmm. And I started as the COO and president, and one of our founders was operating as a CEO. And pretty quickly, I, I can't remember the exact timeline now, but I want to say within about six months or so, she transitioned the CEO role over to me. How long ago did she start the
0: company before she did that? So like, how long was she CEO?
1: Probably for about a year. So they, I came on very early, but they had been off the ground. they had been retailing probably for a close to a year.
0: Wow. So really early stage. Startup. Company. Yeah. Yeah. You
1: know, hardly any revenue at the time. You know, they had a great product and a lot of, you know, product development and a lot of a lot goes into a company to get it <laughs> to mm-hmm. market, right? Absolutely. So they had done all of that, but had just kind of started actually retailing through these bigger retailers that had discovered them at at trade shows, to be honest. And they had just launched their D2C site. So A little backwards, I guess you could say, from a lot of brands that start in D2C, their background was in the spa businesses. So they had launched through their spas and and different smaller independent boutiques. And so they were really looking for someone to come on board and and scale through D2C and and take them into some bigger mass market retailers.
0: So is the story of what I'm hearing, the founder has these other spa businesses. Is that true? And was maybe part of her reason for bringing on you as CEO or having someone take over that role is because she was focusing on other aspects of the business that were outside of the good patch?
1: Not really, actually. So there were three founders and two of them owned spas. And the third one that was actually the CEO had operated a lot of sp- small businesses in the past. But I think what's wonderful, we have wonderful, wonderful founders. They're lovely people. They really realized that out of the three of them, they had Each had really strong skill sets. You know, one was really amazing in branding, one was amazing in sales, and one was more, you know, into ingredients and products and things, but none of them had ever operated a business in corporate America or scaled a business. And so they were really realistic about okay, we have a lot of traction for the product, people are loving it, it's selling like crazy in our spas and these other retailers. But we don't know how to get it from, you know, 1 million to 50 million plus, you know. So yeah, so they raised a seed round and then immediately we're looking to, to find someone that could help them scale.
0: And now we're going to take a quick break to hear a word from our sponsors. Customer service and call centers are rarely topics that people get excited about. But Awesome CX is simply different. Their inclusive culture rooted in wellness and fun means that their teams are encouraged to be their best selves personally and professionally by providing them with everything from mental health and healthcare resources to career development. And regardless of the size of your business, Awesome CX is uniquely positioned to support you throughout your growth. They work with some of the fastest growing startups like FabFitFun, Carbon38, Lettuce Grow, Mudwater, and so many more. Want to see it to believe it? Just email me directly at lee, L-E-E, at stairwaytoceo.com to request to join one of their coffee chats where you can meet with their amazing team and witness the agent engagement yourself. You'll be so impressed. I can't wait for you to learn more about awesome CX to make your brand's customer experience awesome. Thank you so much to our incredible sponsors for supporting the Stairway to CEO podcast. Now let's get back to the show. I always find this interesting, these stories of founders shifting out of the CEO role, just because there's so many founders that they don't know how to do that either, but they figured it out you know, and there's nothing (laughs) right or wrong with choosing the path of taking someone on the BCO or not. Like it's, Everybody's so different, but I always am curious what the decision making process is, or what their other focus was. You know, maybe that person was the product person, and they wanted to focus on being creative and coming up with new product because that's something they love. Which I totally agree with. Yeah, so it's interesting. There's different like personality types and skill sets, and they all kind of. It's funny to. It's fun for me having done so many you know interviews with CEOs to kind of figure out the different personalities that take that seat.
1: Yeah, and I think you know if you're a founder and you you gain traction and you're operating as a CEO, sometimes a lot of founders are very creative and yes. that's why they had this amazing out-of-the-box idea. Mm-hmm. And then it comes to actually operating a business and that is not always that fun.
0: <laughs> right. No, a lot of times it's not, especially yeah. for a creative type of personality who wants to constantly create. Yeah. A lot of the CEO job is not very creative. sometimes.
1: No, it's really not. It's a lot of, you know, just solving problems. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it's very operational. So Mm -hmm. I think for them, it allowed them to kind of take a a deep breath and, you know, have confidence that someone else would make sure that their business was successful, but they could take a breath and just focus on the parts that were fun to them that they were really good at.
0: Which is very hard to do to find that right person that you can trust to take over your business, right? And it looks like you started as president and COO and then 10 months later, we were CEO. So that says a lot about, I think, you know, I don't know how long you knew them before even starting to work with them, but I think it says a lot about probably how you performed in those first 10 months. They were probably blown away and they're like, all right, we need you to be CEO now. (laughs)
1: Yeah, I think, you know, I made sure that I was really going to get along with them before I accepted the role. And I think, you know, they truly are just these wonderful down to earth people. And I could tell that they were ready to kind of hand over the keys to the castle to somebody. It was a perfect mix. And I think that, that intro period of being COO, I think always the intention in their mind, whether I didn't really know this, but was always to hand off that CEO role to somebody once they knew that they could trust them. And I operate a very, I'm kind of an open book. So we got to know each other really quickly because I told it to them very straight, the good, the bad and everything in between. So, and that's kind of how they are as people as well. So we just had this kind of mutual trust right from the start. And they were just so, they were so wonderful and they were so appreciative to have somebody, I think that cared as much as they cared about the business. And I've always been somewhat of a workaholic, I guess you could say. So, you know, I try to find balance, but I do throw myself fully into any job that I'm doing. And I think they could see that.
0: That's awesome and I think you're almost at the 3 year mark of your first ever CEO role. How are you feeling? What's it has it been everything you thought or what have you know what expectations did you have going into or even before you worked at The Good Patch? Just thinking of what a CEO role is and what that entails is it different than you thought how, and if so how?
1: It's it's definitely different and I would say It's really impossible to know any job before you do it, right? And I think the CEO role, it's a lot of pressure. And I would say that's the biggest thing in my mind that I kind of maybe didn't expect or didn't realize is I had always been working for somebody else. And while I still work for somebody else, it is ultimately my responsibility to make sure that this business is successful. And I think success means something different when you're a CEO for me when I think of success I am in charge of all these livelihoods for these employees that now work for this company so the pressure for me comes less from performing for the board or that sort of thing or getting our hitting our revenue targets but more about I am now responsible for making sure that these people that I've hired that I'm fulfilling their career, you know, hopes and aspirations, and giving them kind of the growth and things that I used to want when I was in their shoes. Right. And that's just something that I never thought of before as a leader of a company that you would not only have kind of the company pressure, but also the pressure of all these employees that you're kind of responsible for their livelihoods.
0: Absolutely. How would you describe your leadership style? And what were some examples of leadership you saw maybe in previous roles or things to do or not to do as a leader?
1: Yes. You know, I've had some great examples of leaders along the way and then some other not so great examples. And I would say, you know, I tried to keep those in my mind as I've go- gone along in my career. For me, I really love to hire great people that are. You know, experts in their space, and then really let them do their thing. So giving them the tools that they need, the things that they need to be successful in their role and supporting them. But I'm not a micromanager. I really feel like when you kind of give people a little bit of space and breathing room, they feel more empowered to make decisions and do a good job. And they'll put more into it if they are truly responsible for the outcomes of those decisions and things that they make along the way versus having to run every single thing by somebody. I don't know. So that's kind of my general leadership style. And then, you know, just, yeah, so empowerment and I lost my train of thought. There's one other thing, but.
0: <laughs> Any do's or don'ts you've learned from along the way with other managers that you, you're you like, I'm not going to be like that. Yeah. I won't do that.
1: You know, I mean, I think just the micromanaging thing. I've seen really, really incredibly intelligent people just become so disheartened because they feel like they cannot make a single decision on their own without running it by somebody. And it becomes when you're just kind of doing that and then having to, you know, get everything signed off on, you don't feel responsible for the outcome at all. I've tried really hard to kind of give people a little bit, enough leeway to give them the confidence to make those decisions and help them understand how to make those decisions. And then, you know, just, I think treating people, treating everybody in the org the same. So not, you know, whether they're an intern or an SVP of some channel, everybody deserves to have, you know, the same level of respect. And so when I'm hiring people, those are kind of the red flags that I look for is how they talk about the people that work for them and with them. Because, you know, kind of going back to what I said earlier about you just never know, you know, the intern in the room could have some super creative, groundbreaking idea. And you want to be able to give everybody kind of equal voice and platform. Or I guess you want them to feel comfortable enough where they have a really amazing idea that they're comfortable enough to share it. Right. That they don't feel embarrassed or like they don't yeah. have at the table. I
0: think that's a tough thing as to, I think just trying to make people feel comfortable is very, very challenging because just by nature of you being CEO and I've, you know, have run my own company as well. And you're like people, even if you try so hard to make them feel comfortable, sometimes they'll just never be comfortable with you <laughs> <It's Yes>. because <laughs> of who you are or the role that you're in. Like ah oh, yeah, because I always I've always tried to, especially with the interns. You know, I want to hear everybody's voice. I want you to tell me if you think I'm wrong. I want you to speak up. And it's the people that don't speak up that are the challenge. Like really tough, right? Because you want to support them, you want to like push them, but sometimes they just can't be. There's some personalities that are just not going to work. It's not going to work.
1: Yeah, um, and I, it's even more challenging, I think, in a virtual environment.
0: Mm-hmm. So yeah, people cool. can hide a lot easier. Yes. Yeah. So how big is the team? What does growth look like? And, you know, when you think about, I guess this could be a marketing question, you know, what reflecting back on what's been working from a growth perspective, what's been working?
1: <laughs> yeah. So we have about 20 employees on the, on the corporate side, and then we do operate our own warehouse out of Georgia. Most of our founders are from Tennessee, the Tennessee area. So uh, we stay the kind of local to Tennessee, Georgia, um what's been working on the marketing side you know sampling has really been working for us because the product is really great and find that when people try it they kind of didn't know that patches wellness patches existed so often were their first introduction to that as a form factor and you know there's there's been patches for a long time there's birth control patches and other sorts of patches and very kind of serious applications but as far as what we're doing, oftentimes we're the first introduction, and they try it and they, you know, kind of feel the benefit, and then we find that they try things across multiple need states. So, you know, they might try our B12 awake patch. That's a good. That's a our been our bestseller, and then they'll go, oh, okay, you know that you know, that felt good. I like this. And maybe I'll try the dream patch now or I'll try cycle when it's my time of the month.
0: And I've got the rescue patch on right now. Not that I need to be rescued and I wasn't drinking last night because I know that this is like kind of position for bouncing back after a night out. Like I don't, you know, nights (laughs) out, that's uh, past my age. But I feel I wanted to do the B12 awake, but then there's caffeine in it. And I'm thinking, oh, you know, it's like two o'clock in the afternoon. If I had another coffee, which I'm not really sure, 15 milligrams of caffeine is probably nothing, but I didn't, I don't know. So I kind of avoided that one.
1: Yeah, well, that is the wonderful thing about patches in general is that you can wear them for any amount of time and it's going to deliver those ingredients like the caffeine, for example, in B12 awake, it's going to deliver them slowly and consistently throughout the whole time that you're wearing the patch. So you could take, you could wear that and kind of get that, you know, subtle boost and then you could take it off at five o'clock or whatever you're kind of done with your meetings and, and your day. Yeah. Though. The
0: packaging is so great. I mean, and how, I mean, it's must be so cheap to have to uh, ship these, you know, it's like such a, I feel like as, as an operator of a brand, it's just a dream to be able to stick yeah. a few of these in a, a package and send it out. They're so lightweight, <laughs> what a great yes. business, yeah. um, but you know, it's funny. Cause I was thinking, I'm like patches. Yes. I'm familiar with, you know, patches, but I think that's just, maybe you guys think of this a lot too. Consumers, and maybe I'm not alone, I don't know, but I feel like when we think of our skin, I think of it being like a shield. It's what protects what's inside of us, right? But actually, we're all just giant sponges. Like our skin actually absorbs everything. And it's funny how you just don't think about that until you're like, oh, like I have this patch on right now on my wrist. Yeah. And you put it on, you're like, oh, yeah, my skin absorbs everything. <laughs> you know, it's just, it kind of uh, reminds you, I think, of the importance. Yeah.
1: Yeah. No, you're right on. And that's why, I mean, it's so important to think about anything that you put on your body for yes. that reason.
0: <laughs> right. Which you yeah. kind of intellectually know, you just don't think yeah. about it. Yeah. And it's funny that there's four pouches that come in each of these because I swore, like I looked at it and I was like, oh, yeah, one pouch and one patch in one pouch. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> that's a tongue twister. <laughs> um, but no, that's not it at all. It's actually four in one. That's pretty cool.
1: Yeah, there's four patches in each pouch and, you know, they're easy and simple so you can stick them in your bag or your pocket or whatever and right like go about your they're day. They're great to
0: travel with and, you know, if you're like just done taking pills or supplements or protein shakes or whatever, you know, all the things to try to get your dose of wellness. It's really cool format that you guys have created.
1: Yeah, thank you. I mean, really, thanks to the founders. They, you know, had such a great idea, and I think when they rolled them out, like I said, through their spas, they they were just trying to solve all those things that they were hearing from all their spa customers. So mm-hmm. it started really kind of authentically. It's it's a fun story. That's awesome. So have you guys done
0: any? Have you had to do any fundraising to keep for growth for the business?
1: Yeah. So we raised our series A about a year and a half ago. Yeah. And that was my first fundraising experience. So that and was, was also, that. you know, it was hard. I, <laughs> no. And I think Yeah. Right. No, everybody, when I was starting said, okay, you're going to have to do their fundraise and it's going to be hard. It's going to be, you know, it's going to be like having two jobs and and it was, it was having two jobs at once. So being CEO of a company and then also doing this kind of full-time fundraise, but I have to say after kind of understanding all the lingo, because it is a lot of new lingo.
0: LTV, CAC, this, blah, blah, blah. It's like, yeah, all these. or
1: just multiples and all this, you know, <laughs> right. just funding lingo that's specific to the venture world. You know, once I kind of got all that and felt confident there, I actually really enjoyed the process because you know, I met such wonderful people along the way. I met some awful people too, to be candid. But <laughs> there we go. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but awful. I met some wonderful people, and I think the the female venture world, especially in LA, that's starting to kind of grow and grow. Once I met one person in that world, they introduced me to two more, and then they introduced me to two more, and it was such a supportive, wonderful group of women that I'm still, you know, very much in touch with all of them. And it becomes kind of this very small, very kind of building people up community. So I really Who is this community?
0: <laughs> Who are these people?
1: Well, do I, got to, I think I think I got lucky maybe getting connected to the the right group of women, but they just are incredibly supportive. And as I said, even the one that didn't end up making an investment in the good patch. They still introduced me to multiple people. I'm still in touch with them. You know, I'm still getting invited to is this like an
0: angel group for women or something, or is this like a social women's group?
1: So not any formal group, although there are some networks, but it really is just like, there's some female founded venture funds, um, you know, one of them, for example, is the Artemis Fund that I got connected to. And they're, you know, a female founded venture fund and they invest in female founders specifically. So there are quite a few of those venture funds. There may be not a great example because they're not in L.A., but <laughs> they're they're Texas based. But wonderful women, you know, and there's a few of those funds and they all kind of know each other and they're all incredibly supportive. So. It just kind of goes back to the power of networking and being nice to everybody. And as I said, if they didn't invest, they liked my story personally or liked the company and thought it was interesting enough to say, hey, I think so-and-so at this other fund would be interested and and make that connection. So that's really how my fundraise experience started and we were able to to get it done successfully. What about some of
0: the... um bad stories? What were some of the shocking moments, if any?
1: You know, I mean, there's certainly, it's interesting being a female in this world, because there's certainly some amount of mansplaining and and things that happen. from, you know, a lot of these venture funds are run by, you know, kind of stereotypical older white men. So, you know, there's been, I think Harvard did a scientific study once on how venture capitalists speak to women versus how they speak to men. So it's a very real thing. And and I certainly experienced some of that. I did experience some people that were, you know, just very aggressive and rude. Like, did you go to a name brand school and
0: <laughs> things like Whoa, that? Whoa. really? They went down the education. They like yes. tried to nail it. They're like, did you go to my Ivy League college or No.
1: Right. Yeah. And it was very much that vibe. It's like, whoa, this really happens. Okay. You know, <laughs> you know, I think at the end of the day for founders, it's important to remember that you're giving investors, if you believe in your idea and you believe you're going to be successful, which you should, because that's why you're an entrepreneur and that's why you've started this brand, you're giving the investors the opportunity to be a part of it. Right. So they really yeah. Should. pitching 100% in the end. And so when I came across experiences like that, I just had to remember you know what? They're failing their pitch to me right now.
0: (laughs) So yeah, it's like, listen, um, I'm giving you an opportunity to make money off of me and this gravy train. So get on or get off.
1: (laughs) Exactly. And it's a bumpy ride, but. (laughs) Yes, there are plenty of people that are wonderful out there that will be supportive and also give you the money you need. So you don't need to give people like that your time.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's tough, right? Because it's entrepreneurship, building a business is not easy. And so when you're, you know, used to getting just constantly knocked down, getting back up, it's, you know, wears you down. And then, you know, especially if you're fundraising on top of it, it can be really challenging to keep the confidence level high enough to have that perspective.
1: Yeah. And it is, I found the fundraising world really funny because, you know, all you need is one good investor to say yes. And then everybody wants in, but until you get that first yeah. yeah. Isn't
0: it crazy? It's (laughs) like sheep are the ones backing the black sheep. It's like, wait a minute. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. It's so yeah. bizarre. You're right. It's, I don't know. It's like I, it, maybe a lot of investors don't want to have to do the due diligence. You know, they think that maybe the other, because of the track record of a fund that's been a, around for a while, they think they can make better decisions on fundraising. Yeah. Which, you know, they just don't want to take as many risks. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Dang. So anyways, interesting stuff. So what is next for the good Patch? And what advice do you have for aspiring leaders, people that, you know, are working directors or VPs or whatever, and they want to be like you. They want to be a CEO of a company and run a brand one day.
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, the good patch, we were just chugging along, we're growing and just really kicking off some bigger marketing efforts. So you'll start seeing us on some TV ads and stuff, which is fun. Um, but we're in all targets nationwide, Ulta Beauty, CVS. So we're just really focused on our growth and expanding through our our key retail partners. We have some fun new products ahead that I can't really talk about yet, but we'll be launching in Q4 this year. So, you know, advice for entrepreneurs or maybe people that are wondering, you know, how do you get from a marketing career to a CEO position or, you know, any other career to that level. I think it's really about a, you know, working hard to differentiate yourself as far as work ethic, you know, it's hard work, you know, it's not, you can't really just kind of sit back and work your nine to five and and have it fall in your lap. You've got to put some effort into your network and really growing your network and the people that can give you advice and support and or make connections along the way so working hard at kind of building your personal brand along the way and then for me I think the biggest thing and the biggest thing that differentiated me was just thinking big picture like all always thinking about how does my piece of the puzzle, if you're in operations or sales or marketing, how does my piece of the puzzle fit into the entire puzzle? And what are things, you know, without stepping on any toes, how, how can I think bigger picture? And how can I affect change for the whole org? Um, and, you know, when you start kind of offering researched opinions and things into other areas and thinking bigger picture, people notice, you know, and finding those mentors, you know, finding people in the positions that you aspire to and just asking, you know, people reach out to me on LinkedIn all the time, asking advice. And when they're thoughtfully worded and genuine, I often do respond and give them my time because I think I had a lot of help along the way from just people being generous with their time and support. And I would like to do that for other people. And so don't be afraid to kind of reach out and ask, how did you get here? What can I do? You know, who can you introduce me to? People like to help other people.
0: Right. And even if they don't respond, I mean, worst case scenario is you're back where you already are, right? So you have nothing to lose in reaching out.
1: Yeah. Yeah and there's so many networking groups now you know there's local ones there's nationwide things so you know just having an eye to where you want to be and and joining some of those networking opportunities online can really be helpful awesome well thank you so much cedar i really appreciate
0: you sharing your story thanks so much for joining us yeah thanks so much for having me it was fun